How do you feel? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sad. Dread. Angry. Angry. Well, this morning we're going to tackle a heavy topic. Um, a few weeks ago we asked people to shout out, what are questions that you think a new generation of followers of Jesus are asking? And there were a lot of good questions that people had. And there was a young woman who's a recent college graduate who's just growing in her relationship with Jesus. And um, she grabbed me after the service and she said, my questions were too heavy to shout out. And I said, what are your questions? And she said, well, my, my first and most significant question is, how do I, with integrity, continue to participate in a system in a, the church body that has caused so much pain and abuse for so many people. Amen. And I said, I think that's a good question. Maybe some of the people here today kind of have that same question. <laughs> yeah, you may have asked that. We heard yeah. an amen, and, and Brent and I have asked that question. And I think, you know, 30 years ago, the apologetics questions that people were asking were, you know, where do I go when I die? And what is, what's the, is it Calvinism or Armenian? And people still love to discuss these things. And, but a lot of the students that I interact with, a lot of the younger Christians that I know, they're not asking those questions. They don't feel as essential to them as questions like this. Well, part of that is because the montage that we just made, yeah. that was a small, small, we could have sat here for the next six hours and just run headline after headline after headline. And this is on the news. This is what people are seeing. These things are coming out. And praise God, these things are finally coming to light. They're not being hidden anymore. But if you're sitting out and you're watching these headlines, of course, you're going to look at this and go, huh? What is going on? These are, I thought these were the people that were supposed to be against this. And I have to admit, I mean, I've shared with Amy my own skepticism towards the American church, the white evangelical American church to be able to deal with this. Because I see, I see things happen over and over again where a pastor will step forward. And I mean, even just recently, I think it was last week or the week before, a very well-known Southern Baptist pastor was in the last year credibly found to have sexually assaulted a woman. After six months, Four men, not affiliated with the church that he was a part of, but four other pastors said he was now qualified to return to the pulpit. And he did last week or the week before last. And he preached in the same city that he was, had sexually assaulted the woman in. I'm sorry. I just sit there and I look at that and go, this is garbage. This is absolute garbage. I understand when the world looks at the church and says, you guys have no credibility. And if that's your Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I get a little fired up, sorry. Yeah, you're going to get angry, Brent, today. But that's good. I like that. Get a little fired up. And it's interesting because this happens in all sectors of our world, right? Power and abuse and all those things. It's not limited to the church. But it doesn't, and it bothers me in all the other places that it happens, but it doesn't surprise me fully but it's so shocking that this is, like the church should be the one place where there is safety, yeah. you know, where there is a sense of, a deep sense of security and where you can be most vulnerable and you will be well taken care of, not taken advantage of. And so a lot of the question that I've been asking and Brent's been asking and many of us have been asking is how did we get here? <laughs> how is this so much of our, history and recent history how did we get here and why why is this happening in the church it feels important to kind of own and name um, that christian culture has somehow actually been a breeding ground even mm -hmm. for abuses of power and so how has that happened and why has that happened and those are a few things that we're going to um, begin with this morning and a week or two ago, as we were thinking about this topic, I reached out to Amy and I'm like, we need to make sure we mention patriarchy. Because and I, I said, okay, then you have to get up on stage <laughs> and you have to say that. Because I do believe that patriarchy is part of the problem. 
I think it's this idea of male, males are in charge and you weak little women just, you know, serve us because that's the way God designed it, or at least that's what we say. And I think this system of patriarchy has bred this environment that has led to some of this. Um, it's created this system that's toxic for everyone, not just women. And, and what I hate about this idea of patriarchy is that those that hold so tightly to it really distort the Bible in order to make it stand firm. And so what they'll love to do is they love to look at some passages of Paul and it says women keep silent in the churches or a passage of Paul and Timothy where it says, oh, I do not permit a, man, a woman to speak or to uh, teach a man, you know, or things like that. And in that Timothy passage that t Paul's saying, and that the reason is, is because of creation and the fall. And it's like, okay, let's, let's take a look at that then, please. So patriarchy, where does that come from? Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 is where we find that. And it says, your, God is speaking to Eve. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Yay. <laughs> the big problem is this. Genesis 3, 16 wasn't God's design. That's not how God made it to be. That's what happened when sin entered the world. And as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, are we supposed to be living as citizens of the fall or citizens of the kingdom? Citizens of now or citizens of the way God wants it to be? Okay. Let's back up to Genesis 2.18, before the fall. And you see it there. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What did God do? God created woman in that moment to be a helper for man, not a slave, not a subject for man. In fact, in the beginning, when man is ruling over creation, we were ruling together. We were co-rulers with God over creation. Where are we as followers of Jesus supposed to be? Perpetuating the bad theology of the fall or living as citizens of the kingdom to pull us back to the way God designed it to be? Sure, you can look at the New Testament, you can look and you can say, but the, the, the Bible talks about patriarchy. Yeah, the Bible talks about, you know, bigamy and all these other things. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't make it biblical. And we need to understand that. That sometimes things are in the Bible, not because it's what we're supposed to do, but as the warning of the opposite. And we can't build a theology that can, continues to subjugate women because I think when we do, we begin to view women wrongly. We begin to see women not as equals in partnership, in working together for the kingdom, but we see them as, oh, poor women. And when we, when we get to that place, it's a breeding ground for abuse. And I get it. First Peter, Peter says this, husbands in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Well, sure, some women are weaker than men. Some aren't. What is Peter talking about? You see, if you view this through a patriarchal lens, you'll go, that's right. Women are weaker. We're supposed to have power. Unless you really look at the context of what Peter's talking about here. Weaker is not just women because they're not as physically strong. It's those in society that are viewed as less than. The marginalized, the victims, those that as a result of their position could easily be taken advantage of. Not somebody to abuse or lord over. And Peter's actually looking and saying, we've got to turn this upside down. The culture says, yeah, lord over them. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You honor them. You elevate them. You lift them up in the position they need to be. You don't get to lord over anybody. Jesus is lord. You're not lord. Everybody else is on the same level. And when you look, when you begin to talk about spiritual gifts, nowhere in the Bible does it say, well, men will have these more important gifts and women can serve and make coffee and, and cake. Paul in Galatians says, we are one in Christ. There is neither slave nor free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. We are all one in yes. Christ. Jesus, Paul, the apostles were breaking down the barriers. Look at what Paul says to men and women in regards to the marriage relationship and sex. He says to them, women, your bodies are not your own. They knew that. But then he says, men, your body is not your own. Whoa, what? That's right. There's a mutuality in this relationship. And that's not just for marriage. That comes into the church relationship. I was reading an, an article yesterday by uh, Beth Allison Barr. She's an author and historian. And she says, I think it's ludicrous to build an entire gender theology around a handful of texts 
ripped from their historical context, especially the most restrictive texts like 1 Timothy 2. I also think it's interesting that by universally restricting women from exercising authority over men, complementarianism restricts women more today than did the world of the first century Rome. I guess Russell Moore, a leader in the, used to be a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, I guess he was right when he argued in 2006 that Christian patriarchy isn't like pagan patriarchy. Christian patriarchy might actually be worse. Well, I, amen to that. See why I asked him to get up on stage? <laughs> Amen. And there's so much in that. Even you were talking about there are not gifts that are better than the others. And we, we label men as having these gifts and women as having these gifts. And how many times have I been in environments where it's like women, women are feelers. You're all about your emotions. And you can't trust your emotions. Right. You shouldn't believe your emotions. You shouldn't <laughs> ever let your emotions speak to you. And you know what? That silences women. The Bible talks about the heart way more than it talks about the yeah, mind. Yeah. We are we we have a value for like logic and reason, but there is a way that our feeling our feelings were given to us by God. Um, but it's been again you can Jesus see how had feelings. Jesus had feelings. You can saying. see how <laughs> Scripture can get twisted, and we've experienced that probably each of us on some small level and. And same for men. I always say patriarchy is also bad for men because it puts men in a box that they've got to be these like beefy, like tough, strong guys who are just good at fixing cars and, you know, uh, being logical. There's this push right now, even among Christian American evangelicalism to have these men's conferences and they'll be axe throwing and monster trucks and flames and, you know, all these things associated with what it means to be a man. And it's just like, oh my. And you think about in scripture, like one, Jesus was not, you don't see any of that. You know, I mean, he was, he was, he had authority and he was tough, you know. And he wept. But he also wept. (laughs) He was tender and he was among the people and among the most marginalized. And you think about even David, like... A man after God's own heart. David, a man after God's own heart who um, wrote poetry, played the harp. You know, we don't think about those kinds of things. And so it's also not good for men because it limits men, right? Where, you know how many times, again, in ministry, in context with younger people and here at Ashworth, there are men that have opened up or cried or something and it's like oh i'm ashamed i'm no god made you that way and you it is good for you to have a tender heart and feelings and um even though brent likes to pretend he doesn't have those things he does and it's part of what makes you a a good pastor one or two (laughs) anger or Or, yeah but but on the uh, like you were saying with the emotion thing yeah that one can really get me going because what that does is, you know, I mean, you've heard it before, I'm sure, you know, well, you know, women, you are too emotional. So we need to leave those decisions to the men who are not emotional. And, and I mean, don't you just want to, I mean, righteously slap somebody at that point when you hear that? I mean, it's just ridiculous to deny how we were made, the way God made us as if, well, the mind is elevated above the heart. No, God created it all. And yes, the heart can be evil and wicked, but so the mind can be tricked and deceived. And so what if we just embraced who we were created to be, emotions and mind and all, and stop putting people in a box because, well, you might be emotional. Maybe emotion is warranted at some time. Jesus turned over some tables when it was necessary. Jesus wept when it was necessary. I mean, we need to move beyond it. Amen. Another piece that I think has really shaped the American church and how we've let so much abuse in or been a breeding ground for that is the idea of purity culture. And I don't know if some of you are familiar with this and some might not be, but I feel like this was such a big thing in like the 90s. 90s, yeah. I remember going to a, a youth group, like True Love Waits event, and I learned all about not having sex and why. And I like one of the only things I remember is like talking about STDs, sexually transmitted diseases and seeing pictures and Anyway, I say all this to say there were a lot of authors, there was a lot of movement around getting our, our young people to not get pregnant or to not have STDs or whatever. It was, it was behavior management, essentially. 
and um, and it was shaming for women as well. There was a lot in purity culture that was, I remember when I was in college, I remember the guys gathering, and our, we had a ministry on campus, and the guys gathering and having a conversation, and they came and talked to the women, and they were like, hey, summer's coming up, and you need to be careful about what you're wearing, because when you wear those, um, we would suggest specifically, don't wear a spaghetti strap, type. like, this is real. This was not 30 Cover years ago. Cover that shoulder up. Um, it, again, it, there is something messed up about that. And there was a big movement of um, courting. And courting can be a beautiful thing. It's, you know, this kind but of I idea kissed of dating goodbye. purposeful that was the dating. Book. Yes, but then there was Joshua Harris who wrote this book, um. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it gives all this power to the man. And, and again... Well, you said first service that you had talked to many women yes. who came. Tell, yes. tell that. Yes. In, in college, I mean, this is not like, this is not like 30 years ago. This is recent history. Like, I, there's many other campus ministries on campus and on the campuses in Des Moines. And there's one of them that's large and, you know, it does incredible things. But there are women that have come to me and said, I'm just waiting. Like, what we're taught is to wait for a man to hear from God that I'm the one for him. And they pray about that. And then they approach me. And then they tell me they're going to date me and that God told them to do that. And I've said, I've had to say many times, well, God does speak to women. God will speak to you also. And a relationship should be mutual. You can ask God, you know, about your relationship. <laughs> There's two sides in this. But can you see how that becomes this breeding ground for like weird power dynamics and abuse? Well, it just, it teaches us to not even be able to have healthy male-female yeah. relationships because yeah. every time, evidently the thing, the only thing a woman's good for is to sleep with or have sex with because it's just ridiculous because there's no responsibility for the guy in this culture. Like you said, don't show a shoulder, don't wear spaghetti straps. I mean, that's what the Bible says. If your right eye offend thee, tell the woman to put more clothes on. Mm. No, that's not what the Bible says. You know, and yet somehow this purity culture was all about, oh, you poor guys, you're just animals. You just can't help it. You're just so bad. And we didn't teach self-control and talk about the Holy Spirit and be walking with the Spirit and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. We heaped all this shame and all this garbage on the women as if they were responsible, as if they're the ones that had to carry that whole weight. Well, you caused your brother to stumble. And, you know, we saw this play out in the I Kiss Dating Goodbye and even something older than that, which the Billy Graham rule. And you may love Billy Graham, but I cannot tell you his rule is stupid. <laughs> be, you know why? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have wisdom. We need to be cautious. We need to be aware. I was in college, though, and a teacher was teaching us about the Billy Graham rule, which is you can't ever be alone with a woman ever. And this professor said, you know, if I was driving to work and it was pouring down rain and I saw my secretary, and this was in the 90s, so you know it had to be a woman, and, I, and she was broken down on the side of the road, I would not stop and pick her up because I couldn't be alone with her in a car because of what others would think. I'm sorry, that says more about you making that statement than it does the person that you would be picking up. What's wrong with you that you look at your church secretary and you think only sexual thoughts about her? What's wrong with you? He then changed it eventually and he said, well, I might stop and let her have my car and I would walk. And I'm like, look, what have we done to create this environment that every woman in this room, evidently, I have to see sexually, that is so perverted and just not biblical or godly at all. And that's really what purity culture kind of helped build into us. Instead of seeing women as they are, as co-laborers with Christ, our sisters in Christ first and foremost, to be together. I mean, oh, yeah. it just it drives it, me crazy a bit. I, I think about the other piece that I've felt in recent years is... Purity culture has created a lot of shame and secrecy around our physical bodies mm -hmm. and sex. And God made us for pleasure. God gave us a body and we are, it says in scripture that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like he knit us together in our mother's womb. We should know our bodies. We should be able to talk about our bodies and what we need and what how they work. And I'm amazed, amazed at 
how little Christians know, and in particular, Christian women, it feels like, oh, I can't, you know, I, I feel too much shame. So they go into relationships and they haven't, they don't know anything about their body or what they need or, you know, how to take care of themselves. And um, a lot of that comes from purity culture and this secrecy and this shame around even our physical bodies, which is actually what God gave us. And it's key to who we are and, and how we relate to each other. And I think the same thing about men. And again, working with a lot of young people, you would, I, I mean, I was just in awe of all the young guys who were like, man, I struggled with porn, but they would, they never felt freedom to talk about it. It was just this secrecy thing. It was like, I don't know, no one ever talks to me about sex. We definitely don't talk about that in church context. Nobody ever talks to me about, you know, my body and how it works and those things. I'm learning about it from Playboy and now whatever is online, you know. And that is a, that is a, a huge disservice that the church did. And again, that might feel really distant from the abuse, but it's not. It's con- I think it's connected because, again, we have lived so much of our lives and these things in secrecy and shame rather than talking about things, revealing them. Um, well, and we talk about them in the terms of Bible, and that's what really yeah. locks us in, yeah. is we put the Bible on top of it, and then you can't question it because it's biblical, yeah. and therefore there's no other answer and there's no other way, yeah. and that just locks us in to yeah. this, the handcuffs. Is purity culture bad? Well, the way it was presented, absolutely. Yeah. No, but we want to encourage Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> sexual fidelity and yes. marriage only and I'm these kind of things. I'm probably going to make Pearl Reed Ike skating about it. Right? <laughs> just, just kidding, right? Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But then just even as you keep going on, I yeah. mean, it's like there's more things that build into why we've got this system. And another yeah. one is just more distorted theology around authority and power. And I hope this isn't an issue here because... Uh, one of the things I strive for is to know that we are all together in this. It's not Brent, the hired holy man, or Amy, the hired holy woman. You know, we are all the family of God, and we're working together. Yes, God does lay some responsibility on us as leaders, but that doesn't necessarily give us free reign to do whatever we want to do. And we've we've created this idea in evangelicalism that, well, that person can't be questioned. Really? Really? Seriously? Everybody, there's, you can always question, but we insulated these celebrity pastors and megachurch pastors, and what we did is we created this crazy platform for them to not be questioned, and so that when questions did arise, it was always pushed back on, and it was always, they were told, well, you are trying to damage Jesus, and there's probably no greater example of this like um, Ravi Zacharias. I, I, you know, there's people that came to know Jesus through his ministry, but, you know, before he died, a few years before he died, a woman came forward and she said, you know, that they were in an inappropriate texting exchange, pictures were being exchanged, maybe even a physical relationship. And the board kind of stepped in and was like, no, this is an attack from Satan and we need to make this go away. And so they paid her off and they made her sign a non-disclosure agreement which they, just for the record, those have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes. A non-disclosure agreement shouldn't even be anything we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then after he died, just a few years ago, all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. All the number of women that he had been sexually abusing for years. Oh, yeah. He bought massage parlors for some reason, which is goofy and weird in its own. He would have sex with women, not his wife. And afterwards, he would pray with them. And talk to them about how God was blessing their time together. I only tell you this. I love your faces because that is pure, unadulterated evil, in my opinion. There is nothing but to call it evil. And when I think about what he did, I think about Jesus saying, there will be many that stand before me in the last days and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do many wonderful things in your name and cast out demons? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. How could somebody who's going around the world, an international ministry, do such evil things in the name of Jesus? And that's just, those are the things we hear. And the board made him untouchable when he was alive. It was only after he died that all these things began to come out. Yes. And one of his um, victims, I listened to some sharing that she did about her experience, and she said that Ravi told her, and many people then came out saying this, but basically said, 
don't say anything about this. Can you imagine mm -hmm. if you spoke out against me? Can you imagine the amount of damage that would cause to Jesus and the oh. kingdom of God and the church because so many people have come to faith through this ministry? Oh. And I think it's easy to be like, well, we are not Ravi Zacharias. We, this, it feels so distant. I mean, it feels so personal because it's in Jesus' name, which we talk about, but, but it's also, it's still in our churches. It's still in our culture in many ways. And, and it's sneaky. It's that like, again, you can't question someone or if you question someone, you're considered somebody who's stirring up disunity mm. or you're creating conflict or you're making Jesus look bad or Ashworth look bad or whatever it might be. And that's dangerous. Yeah, and this protective atmosphere, this defensiveness that happens has gotta be gone away with. You know, what I, I think it's so interesting that as you look and you know, you had the Catholic abuse scandal that was horrific and Protestants got to sit on the side and go, whew, not in our camp yeah. until it came to our camp. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Until we found out, you know, we liked, we looked at the Catholics and we said, oh, it's that celibacy thing. If they'd let those priests get married, it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, until you look at all the Protestant stuff that was going on. And it was by married men that were abusing other women and children in their churches. And you go, oh, maybe that wasn't it. And, it, and our chickens did come home to roost in that moment because we realized. And then even the Southern Baptists were able to go, well, we're not like those Protestants. You know, because and we, they what they do, they hid behind church autonomy. They said, oh, but we can't do anything. And they said, oh, we can't keep a list until it was found out that they did have a list of 700 names of men and people that they knew had abused others and they were keeping it quiet. Oh, yeah. the church has blood on our hands. I mean, period. Yeah. That's all we can say is that the church has been complicit yes. in all of this from the beginning. And we've done everything as much and as wrong as the world to cover it up and act like. And the reason we did that was because what was more valuable to us was not truth, was not honesty. It was reputation. It was brand. It was ego. It was pride. That became the most important thing to us. And we said, let's protect ourselves and our celebrity pastors at all cost. Yeah. And the victims, uh, th that's just, you know, casualties along the way. Seriously? Seriously. This is, I mean, and it's, it's ridiculous. We, we lived as systems-centered churches, as yeah. Scott McKnight said, when we needed to be people-first churches. Yeah. If, the most, if the thing we're most concerned about is our reputation, then we've missed the boat because that is not what Jesus was concerned about at all, and that is not what Jesus left us to do. And if we can't be authentic and real, and if, as you said earlier, if we can't be the safe space for people to come in and talk about these things, Let's shut the doors, mm -hmm. sell the land, and move on because there's better things that we can hmm. do with our time on a Sunday morning. I read a book by Rachel Den Hollander, who was the first woman who like broke this story. She was an Olympic gymnast, um, and she'd been abused by her by Larry Nasser. That whole story, of, and, and and there was so much that came out. But I didn't realize this until I started reading her book that her story is actually the first time she was sexually abused was in a church oh. by a pastor. Oh. And she talked about how we have this weird idea that we're protecting Christ or oh. we're defending Jesus' name. We don't want him to look bad, but actually we're protecting Christendom. You know, we're protecting ourselves. We're protecting church. We're protecting a system like Brent said, a system over people, which is very much unlike Jesus. And it reminds me of the Pharisees who everything is about what's on the outside, protect, you know, we want to keep up an image. And at this point, uh, in talking, again, in talking with a number of younger Christians, like this woman who asked me this question, I'm like, we want to protect a reputation that we no longer have. Like the church in America does not have a shiny reputation. I think the best thing we can do is say, yeah, we've screwed up. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of casualties and we want to do better. Yeah. We want to change and we want to be more like Jesus and, and to own our stuff. That's the whole basis of our faith is 
repentance and forgiveness and mercy and and restoration and I believe that that's what uh, this new generation that's asking the questions that's what they want to hear they want to hear honesty they want to hear not excuses or or a defense or cover up they want to hear honesty and they want people to say yeah help us do better yeah. yeah so what does Jesus say about this that's the question right and as Amy and I kind of talked about this over the last couple of weeks, Matthew 18 came to mind. The disciples, you know, they didn't catch it. And they're like, who's the greatest? <laughs> Jesus, tell us who's going to be the best. Who gets the best seats in the house, you know? And Matthew 18, starting in verse 2, says, Jesus called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then he continues and he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Uh -oh. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That is powerful. When Jesus begins talking about a child, he moves to talking about little ones. And he's not talking about children anymore. He is talking about the marginalized. He's talking about those that the world looks at, those that don't have power, those that can't defend themselves. And this is such a powerful verse, powerful passage in this moment because Jesus is tearing these things down. I mean, did you see what he said? He said, if you cause somebody who is vulnerable, somebody that doesn't have power, somebody that's marginalized, if you cause them to stumble, it's better for you to go tie a stone around your neck and drop yourself into the middle of a lake than it is for you to cause them to stumble. Wow. Yeah, and it's interesting because, <laughs> I mean, I read this passage a few times this week. I'm like, ooh, ooh, this is harsh language. And I think, you know, we do see Jesus using hyperbole here, but the message he's sending clearly is this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And what he's he's saying, take extreme measures. That's what I see. He's like, mm -hmm. cut your eye out, you know? The onus is not on the vulnerable person. Right. The the onus is on the person with power. And so I think what does Jesus say to Folks in power, folks in positions of power, folks in, you know, who could be the abusers. He says, you better take extreme measures, you know, if you feel like there's a, even an inkling in you to take advantage of someone that's vulnerable, you take extreme measures to stop that. Because you are responsible. Yeah. That's what Jesus is saying. Yeah. You're responsible for yes. what you do. Yes. Is essentially what Jesus is saying. And you look at everything else he's saying. It's on the screen. This was just kind of a quick thing. He says he loves the least of these. Yeah. That this is where his passion is. This is where his heart is, is to protect them. He says he hates evil more than we do. Mm -hmm. When we might be willing to cover it up and, and gloss over it and not give it the, the attention it deserves, Jesus is like, oh no, no matter how much you may think you hate it, God hates it more. Just rest assured. And it tells us that, you know what? God will intervene. God will intervene in, in some way at some time. Yeah. Yeah, I think the... The other thing that Jesus would be saying is to those of us who have cared more about our reputation, mm -hmm. he would call us Pharisees. Mm -hmm. He'd say, he'd treat us like he did the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, he's talking to them and he's like, you guys care so much about your dill and your mint and your cumin, <laughs> you know, all your spices. And you've neglected the important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He's like, you're a mess on the inside, and you look good on the outside. And I think, again, we have, as a church, 
And as people that make up the church, we have got to just, in general, let go of that pharisaical thing in us that always wants image and optics over what's really going on. And I think I've loved this last year that Brent in particular has really led us into doing more kind of spiritual formation things, like what we'll be doing at the retreat this Saturday. And all those things are not just for us. My mom always calls it belly belly button gazing. Like, oh. you know, you like look internally and it feels like woo-woo. Navel gazing. Navel gazing, thank you, navel. But if you, and it's not that. That's not why we do it. We don't do things, we don't look inward and we don't reflect on how we're feeling and what we're doing and what things are coming up and what patterns are in our life to just gaze inward. We do that so that we can reflect on where we really are with Jesus and following him and what needs to be dealt with. And, and create space yes. for the Holy Spirit of God to deal with us yes, on those things us. that need to be dealt with. Yes, so when the inside is, is beautiful, it may be really messy, but when there's room for Jesus to work in there, then you don't have is you know these this whitewashed tombs thing going on where it's like we we're trying to protect our image. No, we we long to actually be transformed people who look more like Jesus, and it, we're willing. We got to be people who are willing to look and own our mess and own all these abuses and this pain on the outside. And Amos five, I love this passage where the um. It says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. I mean, it's just this very dramatic language. Like, I don't want your offerings. I don't want your grain offering. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want any of it. He says, away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And again, there he was calling out folks who were, they were not paying their hired hands well. They were taxing people who were poor. I mean, it's again, it's this treating the most vulnerable and most marginalized in their community like junk and then also being super religious. And focusing he's like, on, it's oh. focusing on the wrong things. Yes. And that's what we've done. And that's, that's what, what we done. as a church have done. Yes. We focused on the wrong things. We've focused, focused on power. We focused on status. We focused on results. Well, how big is your church? Numbers. And how big is yeah. your budget? And how many books has your pastor written? And how many yeah. followers do you have on Instagram? And all these things. And we focused on celebrity. And I think this is a reckoning moment for the church where yes. God is yes. saying to the church in America, yeah, I hate your religious festivals. I hate what you're doing in my name. I'm not affiliated with that. And this is an opportunity for the church to decide, will we respond? How will we respond? Because as it says on the screen, how we've behaved and responded has revealed the true character of our hearts, period. And isn't that a convicting statement? Mm -hmm. I think this is the moment where Jesus is saying, as he said in Luke 8, 17, there's nothing, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. It is time for the light to shine. And it starts with us. It starts in the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I appreciate I I made a joke about it, but I really appreciate your anger. I do. I think that's, it feels like Jesus. That's how he is. He's angry at this kind of injustice that's been done in his name. Angry at a level that we probably don't even know. Yeah. fully and then also you see in scripture his tenderness to people who are hurting um, and so if you in this room have experienced some kind of spiritual abuse some kind of physical abuse in Jesus name or you know people who have I want to remind you and these feel like even trite words but they're not because they're words from scripture that it says in Psalm 147.3 that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. One of the passages of scripture I go to all the time is Psalm 34.18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Earlier on in that psalm, it says that his eyes are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cries. He hears you, he sees you, he knows you, he weeps with you. And he's committed to your healing. And even when you look to Jesus and how he interacted with vulnerable people, you get this understanding. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. 
you know, he engages her and she's like, are you talking to me? You're not supposed to talk to me. John chapter eight, the woman called in adultery, you know, you want to talk about abusive situation, dragged out naked or half naked in front of a crowd so that they could make an object lesson for you, uh, out of you for their religious point. And Jesus says that he's without sin, cast the first stone. They all leave. And Jesus then looks at her and says, where are they? The ones that were going to accuse you and they're gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Or even Luke chapter 7. He's at the home of a Pharisee. He's having dinner. We talked about this last summer. And this woman with a terrible reputation comes in. And they're like, how dare you? Let her her touch you. Jesus is like, I'm here for her. The compassion, the love, the tenderness that he continually shows time and time again is a reminder no matter what you've been through. Jesus is there. You know, the greatest tragedy, I mean, there's all kinds of big tragedies associated with this, but I think one of the greatest is just the shame that comes with somebody that is abused. You convince yourself it was your fault. You convince yourself you should have done things differently. I don't want to tear, I don't want to create disunity in the church. And so when you just heap on yourself all the shame, all the shame, all the shame. And shame is, a, is an incredible isolator. I mean, it is the thing that just keeps you from reaching out and going anywhere and speaking up and doing anything. And I mean, Satan's just sitting in the background going, yep, that's exactly what I want. It's a time, now is the time for the church to stand up and say, we will be the place where you can come and you can speak the truth. It doesn't matter if it's against me or Amy or anybody else in this place. This is going to be a real place. This is going to be an authentic place, and we will respond. And when we see injustice, when we see abuse taking place, we'll speak out. And I'll just tell you, on behalf of what I've seen, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. It it breaks my heart to see what has been done in the name of Jesus and the damage that it has caused and the people who have been turned away from Jesus because somebody did something to them in his name. Just because you have a flag with the name Jesus on it doesn't mean you're representing him, just so you know. Just because you pray with somebody after abusing them doesn't get God's blessing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it is time for the church to step up and lean into this and say, we will be the safe place for people to come. And whatever we have to do to make that happen, we will, we will deal with it. You know, there is an element. America, we're so individualistic to a, to a sinful fault, in my opinion. Because we had, oftentimes, we would look at this and we'd go, but we didn't do anything here at Ashworth. So what? We're culpable. Mm-hmm. We're on the hook. Yep. Daniel was in exile. And you look at some of his prayers and what did he pray? He prayed prayers of confession for his people. He didn't do it individually, but he prayed corporate prayers of confession. That's where we need to be as people. We need to confess. We need to pray these prayers of confession on behalf of the people who in our name have done vile, evil, horrible things in the name of Jesus. So a few things that we want to do at Ashworth, how do we respond? What needs to change going forward? I think one, we will get angry with you. We'll <laughs> listen and get angry. We'll weep with you. Um, but we want to have more than that in place. And this might seem strange or even over the top, but I think this is what's needed at this point. We talked a lot this week about what do, what is our response and what is what's even a, a next clear next step that we can take that shows you all, even as our church, as this church right here, that we are serious about this. We do not want to be a place where, you know, I guess what I'm saying is we want to take extreme measures so that abuses of power don't happen, um, so that these kinds of things don't happen. Um, And so one of the things we talked about was, well, if if something did happen, were to happen with you know, somebody, an interaction that somebody had with Brent or I or somebody on our staff, they would probably not want to approach us, you know, and tell us about that. And so we started to think, like, how can we u- utilize our deacon team? And so I talked with Trisha Wheelock this week, and she's essentially willing, and, and we're setting up a process. It's in process right now. But as a safe person that you could reach out to, it, Again, it sounds, it probably sounds kind of weird, but I'm like, she's like our church's victim advocate, you know, who would say, 
I will be the voice. I will be the voice that will join your voice and go to the elders or, or you know, and, and that creates safety for a person who could be potentially abused. It also creates safety for the leadership too. Um, again, we we want to put a real uh, boots to what we're talking about and say we want to create things. And so you'll see something more come out about that. But um, we want you to feel like this is a place where you can share where if you see abuses of power or leadership or dynamics that are unhealthy, that those could be addressed um, and that your voice will be heard and that we take those things very seriously. Yeah. Um, we, will, we will always be the place that takes it very seriously. Um, when I was ni- 19, I was a freshman in college and I took my first church job. And uh, I was in a small church in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I had a small youth group, about six, seven kids, not many. Most of them were the pastor's kids. Two of them were the pastor's kids. And I'd been there a few months, and one day the pastor's daughter comes into my office. She was 13, and she sat down and just, you know, we're just back and forth, chit-chatting, no big deal. And then all of a sudden the conversation changed, and she started crying. And she began to tell me how the previous youth pastor would come get her out of Sunday school take her to another part in the church and sexually abuse her. And her dad, who was the pastor, and this guy was connected in other ways. His in-laws were the finance committee and all this whatever garbage. And her dad's response, and I don't necessarily fault him. I think it's a hard decision, you know, hard to know how to navigate this. But his response was to go to the guy and say, he didn't deny it. He said, but if you'll leave quietly, we'll just let this go. 19-year-old Brent was a little more emotional, I think, than 48-year-old Brent. And I went to the pastor and I said, you will go to the cops or I will go to the cops, but one of us is going to the cops Mm -hmm. because we have released this predator Mm -hmm. into another church and that is not something that we will do. So he and his wife decided to go see a counselor, a therapist, and through that interaction, because a counselor is a mandatory reporter, they went to the police. That guy was arrested. He was put in jail for five years like he needed to be. You know, 19 years old, I didn't know which way was up. But there's a reason that I experienced that, I think, and it's because it shaped me in my ministry. Because this is important to me. It's important for me to know that we are a church of authenticity, where we don't just wear masks when we come in and everything's hunky-dory all the time, that we're a real place And whether you experience abuse here or somewhere else, this is a place where you can come in and share and that you're going to have a community that believes you, that puts their arms around you and walks with you through it. And ultimately, I'll tell you what I hope and my desire is that whatever we walk through with people is that we will be able to show them the real Jesus, not the Jesus, the perverted screwed up Jesus that they've been exposed to, but the real Jesus. And I hope we would be able to help them separate that painful experience with religion and faith to help them experience the Jesus who is loving and compassionate and who is there so that they can fully experience hope and healing in, in, in their lives. So, you know. so the final thing I guess I would say is we're, we are going to send an in our weekly email this week, some resources, books, things you could read, things that might just be a, if you want to learn more or understand more, or if you feel like, oh, I need, this is touching something that I have not dealt with, you know? Um, and also, we're available to, to talk, to pray, to process, um, and we want to, we want you to feel freedom to share, and I know that can be hard, but if there is something even that's coming up for you today, grab one of us. Would you email one of us, call one of us, set an appointment with us and come talk. Um, Let us pray for you. And and even both of us have connections to even folks who are professional who walk through some of these places of abuse with people. Um, And as we close, I I wanna pray this prayer for us. was reading um, from this woman, her name's Bethany Clark, this week, and I, I loved her words here. It's a prayer of confession and repentance. Um, and so I'm gonna read that for us um, on our behalf, on, on my behalf and Brent's behalf. 
um, this morning. So wherever you are, just if you're joining us online, close your eyes and just listen to this and let this be the prayer in your heart too. Jesus, as you left this earth, you called your followers to live in a new kingdom of love and justice and healing. We confess that the church that once turned the world upside down has not followed your ways, but has done evil. People have loved power more than people. Where you demonstrated compassion, there are leaders who have abused those in their care. Instead of nurturing truth and justice, there has been a culture of silence and secrets. Leaders have covered up injustices and silenced those who speak up. We repent of ambivalence and apathy towards injustice. We repent of being the tax collector who said, thank God I'm not that sinner. We have often closed our eyes and ears to the cries of our brothers and sisters. With the ones who've been hurt by the very people who were supposed to care for them, with those who've been physically, emotionally, or spiritually abused, we cry out. With those who no longer feel safe in a place where they should find God's love, we mourn. We grieve the disappointment, confusion, and pain that comes with learning that those we looked up to or where our teachers have caused harm. We sit in the pain with those we've lost friendships and been shunned by church communities for speaking out or leaving unhealthy churches. Oh God who hears, it should not be this way among those who call themselves your followers. With those who've had to fight to be heard and understood, we lament. With those who've been mistreated in churches due to race or gender, we cry out, how long, oh Lord? We groan along with creation, waiting for the day when you will make things right. Come quickly, Jesus. This burden is too heavy for us to carry. Help us, Holy Spirit, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Shine your light into our midst and reveal our blind spots. Open our eyes and ears and hurts. hearts. May we truly see and hear the hurting. May we be quick to listen and slow to speak when our brothers and sisters share their experiences. May we not be in a hurry to move on, but be willing to sit with the discomfort, mourning with those who mourn as long as it takes to bring healing. Lead us, pastors and church members, in creating a culture that nurtures goodness and empathy, grace, truth, justice, service, and Christ-likeness. May we walk in the way of Christ, the way of love, through faith in the name of Jesus and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Amen.